Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. My name is Vince Marquis. I've been around OVV for about five years, and um, it's a great place. Wonderful family life and uh, great people. Today, oh, and just that I used to be a teacher a long time ago now, but uh, I'm still a teacher, but just not getting paid for it. Today we're going to do something um, a little different maybe, but it's uh, not so different if you're a little older. It's, it's old style, no technology glitz up there. Just the Bible, some notes, and a guy on a mic. If uh, you want to follow along in scripture, I'm, I'm going to do a meditation on Psalm 33. And I'm going to pray first. Father God, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you, especially right now, for your word, which is precious, which is truth which is what you have to say to us. And Lord, uh, may our meditation today be pleasing to you. Please divide what's not of you from what is so that we can discard it, that which is not of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go through some points that come out of it uh, uh, in sequential order with some of these verses. Psalm 33 is written by David. Traditionally, that's what we say. The first, David wrote about a third of the book of Psalms. That's what we believe anyway. And pretty much the whole 50, first 50 Psalms are his. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous, It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. 
A horse is a vain hope for deliverance, despite all its great strength that cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Right at the beginning, there's a logical order to this. There's a, it's a beautiful, complete, in one package meditation of some of the very basic things there about our lives and about our relationship with God. Right at the beginning, David starts with how we approach God. And he says, we come into his presence with joy. Now, that's possible if you're in a relationship with him. It's probably not so possible if you're not, although not impossible. To his, his presence with joy, with a recognition of who he is, and a recognition that he is worthy of our praise and our worship. Secondly, we come with the recognition of who we are as we approach him and how we address ourselves to him. And the thing I note here is contrary to some theology, David doesn't come with worm theology, as we sometimes call it. Worm theology, that kind of thing where I'm a worthless worm and I don't deserve to be in God's presence. You know, I'm the lowest of the low and all that kind of stuff. David is not coming because he's not a sinner. He, he knows very well he's a sinner, but he's making a claim that as righteous we can stand up in God's presence. You don't come groveling and sniveling along the ground. You come upright. And this is not about having done all the right stuff. It's not about that at all. One of the interesting things is that from that day until now, and that's 3,000 years ago when David was around, Jews pray standing. They don't come sniveling and groveling into God's presence they come standing in God's presence, and they pray looking up. They don't pray groveling on the ground. Righteousness, what is that? When, we tell, when, when David says, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous, what is being righteous? Well, some people, you know, you, you see, we have this image of self-righteous people. Yeah, I'm so good, I follow all the rules, I've got it all down, man. That's not what this is at all. Righteous here is not based on anything we can do. Righteous is based on who God says we are, not on what I say I am about myself. It means that I can come before God without fear because I know that I'm not guilty. God has declared me not guilty. Now, I'm not not guilty because I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not guilty because God says I've cleared the record because I come depending on God's mercy, depending on his grace to me. And that was possible even for David, and David was a great sinner. 
as you probably know, he did some pretty mean and nasty stuff. But he could still come before God and claim righteousness because he had repented, he had turned away from his sin. And in Jesus, we have the guarantee that we're not guilty because Jesus took the rap. He took the penalty. We still need to confess when we do something wrong. We still need to make it right. But our basic posture, if you want, when we come before God, is in the mercy of Christ, being covered by his mercy. Then we move down a little bit farther, and going to verses 4 and 5 here. It says that God's word is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Now, a long time ago, thousands of years ago, Adam and Eve kind of blew the perfect world, right? We live in a messed up world, and it was handed down to us as this, just the way it is. We live in a world with consequences, cause and effect. But his word, God's word, is still faithful. He created that perfect world, but he hasn't turned away from it. He has good intentions toward, toward it. And even in our rebellion, which has consequences, God has not stopped loving us. Jesus said we would have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but take comfort, I have overcome the world. And Jesus also promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. So when we get into that trouble, God's word is faithful. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus said, I've overcome the world, and in him we can overcome. That doesn't mean we'll never blow it, but we can get up and we can overcome. Overcoming is not about escaping. In North America, we would rather not have any trouble. We want the perfect life with all the wonderful things, no troubles. But we know very well that that's not going to happen. Overcoming is not about escaping from trouble. It's not about escaping from bad stuff happening to you or anybody else you care about. Overcoming is about not being ruled by whatever's coming your way. Sometimes we afflict it on ourselves. Sometimes it comes when we haven't done anything really that we can understand that brings it on. But whatever it is, whether I inflict it on myself through my dumb decisions and my bad actions, I can still get up and overcome. It's about trusting in the one that is the overcoming. It's not being ruled by our sin. It's not being ruled by my selfishness and my addictions and all the rest of it. Well, if you, if you got an addiction, you're in a place where you are being ruled and you need to overcome by turning away from it. And that can be really hard. I understand that. All of that stuff is stuff that is going to get us down until we turn to the overcomer. And with his help and with the help of brothers and sisters who are there too, we can become overcomers. Sorry, I just got to separate my pages here. Okay. I'm in a little trouble with that. So we're moving on to the next couple of verses here, 6 and 7. 
6 and, six and 7, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars, and he puts the deep into storehouses. What David is doing here is he's giving us a context. And this is really important. Who are we dealing with? We're dealing with the creator of the whole universe. Sometimes we reduce God to something like minuscule, either by the place we give him in our lives or by the place we give him in our minds. It's kind of like God is there when I need him and, and you know, I can just kind of turn to him and give him the extra, you know, little bits here and there. But when we come before God and when we're relating with God, and even in, if I have a, a good, let's say good, a constant relationship with God, it's still easy to slip away from that basic thing that who I'm dealing with here is not, is not a person like I am. I am dealing with the creator of the universe. And that's what David is getting at here. In my relationship with God, I cannot lose sight of this. And what is the creator like? Well, the creator is the one who made everything by the breath of his mouth, by simply speaking. What God had in his mind, if we can put it in these terms, simply comes out, we talk about his word, his word is living and active. It's not this passive thing that's set on a page like this. Now, these are symbolic, although they're very true and very real, but they're symbolic of what God really is and what his word really is. It's something that always acts, always has impact. And God is the creator who is always acting. He's always having an impact. Everything he does is result of his word. Jesus is the ultimate representation of that, the ultimate action of God, the ultimate expression of his word. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by his command, it says in Hebrews 11.3 so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Now, you know, if you're a science buff and you're into physics and all modern physics and all that and quantum physics and all of that, okay, they're trying to explain why there is anything, how it could have come out of nothing and all of this. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff out there, okay, about that. Keep it simple, right, KISS? The simplest explanation for anything is that there's a creator who said, let there be. Amen. And it's as simple as that. And all of the other stuff backstopping behind that is an, is an attempt to avoid that. To say, well, you know, we don't really need the creator in there. And we don't need that kind of a concept. As Stephen Hawking used to say, we no longer have need of that hypothesis, the God hypothesis. But everything is shouting at us, that universe out there. Read Psalm 19 again sometime. Universe is shouting at day to day pours forth speech, okay? The starry host on the macro level is shouting at us, there is a creator, okay? 
And then when you look at the micro level here on Earth, you see the same thing from the, the, the complaint. They used to say, you know, that microcelled organisms are, are like, they're so simple and everything. Now they realize they're almost as complex as the human brain. The mitochondria is totally inexplicable. And this is at the, the unicellular level. <clears throat> they have no explanation of how something like that could evolve. Everywhere, we look through the microscope or the telescope as saying, there is a creator. And that's what David, although he didn't have the technology we have, is saying here. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about the creator. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The universe functions by God's principles and God's laws, if we can call them that, regardless of what we think they are. They're not accidents. They are entirely the things that God put in place to make it all work. And he hasn't taken his hand off it. He's not a distant creator like the deists used to think back in the Enlightenment, and some people still do, that, you know what, he just sort of set up this system and lets it all run like a clock and, you know, uh, he has nothing more to do with it. Not at all. Uh, there's one verse of the Quran that I like, okay? As God is as close as your jugular vein, okay? And there's a real truth in that. How far away is God? Well, he's not very far at all. Cut your jugular vein and you'll see him real fast, okay? But on the other side of that, he's, he's even closer than that. He holds everything together by the word of his power. Amen. Nothing works unless he wills it to work. Yeah, I know, there are processes, natural processes and all that, and there are consequences, but they, the reason they work is because he's still there holding, making them work. Verse 8 and 9, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He is the infinite, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, and all the alls that you want to attach to that. Okay? He only needs to speak, and a thing is. Jesus was the perfect representation in the flesh of that. How did Jesus raise the dead? How did he raise Lazarus? Four days in the tomb, stinking, rotten, a body in full decomposition. And what did Jesus do to raise him from the dead? Did he go through a big, long hocus-pocus and invocating and all of this kind of stuff? He simply said, Father. He reached out to his father, and then he turned to the tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Can you get your head around that? When he went up to the dead body lying on, 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 the, on the pallet there, and they were taken about to bury it, the, the widow of Nain, okay? What did he say to that guy? He went up to the pallet, and he just said, Young man, I say to you, rise up. And he rose up. Yeah? Every time you see Jesus doing something like that, he's not doing some big elaborate thing as if he's got to do a magical ceremony. This is God's word making something happen just by his word. And you want to say, that? give, give me some evidence that Jesus was God. Um, things like that would point, you know, like God speaks and these things happen, Right? 
All right. Paul says at one point, okay, this is the idea that God is still holding everything together just by the word of his power, just by the action of his will. God's will is not passive, it's active. If he wills it, it's happening. Okay? And Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's not past tense. That's present tense. The reason I'm still alive today is because God wants me alive today. Now, when I'm dead, I'll still be alive, but okay, my body will kind of be, you know, doing what dead bodies do, but I'll still be alive, okay? And you too, don't forget that. Whether you're nearer or farther from that day, don't forget that. You're not going to be dead when you're dead, okay? And then in another place, Paul says this, in Jesus the Messiah, remember the word Christ it's a title. It's not a name. Christ is the, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one that God sent. In Jesus the Messiah, by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Gee, that sounds familiar, right? We just read that. He is before all things, and in him thing, all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Their wills are one and their action is one. 10, 11, 12. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Wow, I wonder if there are any nations like that these days. But anyway, God is incredibly patient, incredibly kind, incredibly merciful, and tolerant beyond all measure. <laughs> I'm not saying there's no judgment. But God will do, uh, go a long, long way before judgment falls, okay? Because if we were going to be judged and God was just all about judgment, none of us would be here. And the complexity of that is he allows us to make choices and our choices really mean something. And he allows governments to make choices and do all sorts of things that we would consider wicked. He allows it. I don't always understand why. Does anybody? If you do, please let me know. Regardless of our choices, though, there are always consequences. Sometimes they're sooner, sometimes they're later, right? You take poison, the consequences are pretty quick, right? But sometimes we're taking poison in very small doses over a very long time, and then the consequences take quite a while to come, right? It's like that in our own lives, it's like that in nation, nations' lives, in people's, as groups' lives. Usually, God doesn't intervene directly in people's individual lives or in national life or society life, but his principles still govern the results. The principles of God still govern the way things are going to play out here. And sometimes, a lot of the time, he doesn't intervene directly because he's saying there are principles there. 
This is the way I made things to work. And if you're going to ignore that, you're going to come down with some consequences of that. It doesn't mean that God isn't loving, but it, you know, God's love allows us to make choices. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, and the purposes of his heart through all generations. Do you ever wonder about those verses about how the sins of the fathers are... I mean, this is sometimes I say, oh man, that's awful. The sins of the fathers are visited on the children up to the third and fourth generations. This is not because God is some evil, evil ogre and saying, you know what, I'm going to curse that family. Right? He's saying that unless you turn away from those things, you're going to suffer for them. That's really what's going on there. And if we're choosing constantly to make these kinds of choices, turning away from the principles God has given us, nations are going to suffer for it. I'm going to suffer for it. Right? I'm going to suffer because of my own choices, but I may be suffering in a sense, if you want to call it the suffering. Suffering is the sense of it's not right. I'm still maybe suffering from some bad choices my parents made. Now, you can overcome those things, but you have to turn away from them if you know what they are. The problem is that we start down these roads of making bad choices and we think we're in control. We think we're going to get away with it. We think we're not going to have the consequences, right? Sometimes we don't even know what the consequences are anymore because we're not listening to the one who set up the system. Yeah? It's like trying to use a piece of technology without reading the manual first. Hmm? Small or great, God knows all about our decisions. And that's what we're talking about here. He looks down and all... Oh, that's a little later, okay. But uh, he foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples because sooner or later we're going we're to come up against the consequences. Sooner or later. There's a mysterious verse in Romans... Well, it's kind of mysterious to me. A very familiar one. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Some of you people probably have memorized that verse and cited to yourselves, you know what, this stuff is not very good, but it's all going to work out for good, right? Being according to, God, uh, to God's purpose is kind of mysterious. There are times when I'm going through some stuff and I don't, I don't see it, right? God, I'm having trouble here. I don't see how this is working for good. It's because I'm sitting at the bottom of the mountain and all I'm seeing is the trouble around me, right? But if I was on the top of the mountain, I'd get a much bigger picture and a much better picture and say, oh yeah, look at that stuff over there and that stuff over there. All right, that's going to work out okay or something. When we're there, it's about trust. If God's word is true and faithful and firm, I have to trust. Trust is what the both Hebrew and Greek words for faith also mean trust. Trust not blindly, not because, you know what, just believe, but because we have good and sufficient reasons for believing. And that is that God is. God is all of these things we've been talking about. He hasn't changed. He's not moving. His principles are not moving. They're not going anywhere. God is faithful and true and just and the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So my faith here in the middle of it is in a faithful and trustworthy God, the one who made things, everything. Even Jesus needed faith. Yeah? Do you think? We say, well, Jesus was the son of God. I mean, he was God. What does he need faith for? He's just God, right? That's because we forget that he was also human, totally, completely human. And as a human, he suffered. Do you not think? Jesus suffered. He suffered in all the ways. It says he was even tempted. In Hebrews, it talks about he was even tempted in every way as we are, except for he didn't sin, right? But he was definitely tempted to sin multiple times. We only hear about a couple of them. The one, the famous ones when he went into the desert to fast for 40 days and he was tempted at the end, right? We hear about that one. And the other time it says that he was tempted was in the garden. Well, it sort of says it indirectly. Luke says that, okay? You remember the prayer in the garden? He was tempted to give up, right? I think. That's my interpretation. Jesus needed faith to go through the terrible ordeal, trusting that in the face of it all, and contrary to the evidence in front of him that he was about to be completely obliterated as a human being, go through the worst thing possible for anybody ever to go through, God would be faithful, that God would keep his word to him. Some people think Jesus had a word of doubt or a, or a moment of doubt on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we, you know, it's theological. I'm not going to go into all the, because I don't think anybody's got the definitive answer on that. But one idea is that, well, first of all, he was, he was quoting the opening verse of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, if you read it at some point, is incredible. It's, again, a psalm of David, a thousand years before Jesus, describing to a T the ordeal of Jesus on the cross. How did David know what that would be? Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. Okay? But it's an incredible thing, an incredible description of what Jesus went through on the cross. And he quotes that opening verse there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that temptation or is that just an, affirm is that an affirmation of Jesus' trust that ultimately, because at the end of Psalm 22, there's the fulfillment of God's promise, okay? But Jesus needed faith. Paul puts it this way. The faith is that if you're going through something terrible in this world, and Paul says this in Philippians, when he was on the verge of death at one point, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, why? And Paul was in prison when he wrote that, and he was going through something terrible. He was threatened with death, that very possible he could have been killed at that point. But he says to the, to the believers in Philippi, to live is Christ, because if God lets him live, he's going to get to serve God and experience more of God's benefits and joy in this life. 
but to die is gain because he knows if he's going to die, he's not dead. He's just gone on, transformed to be in the presence of Christ face to face. And he is so looking forward to that. He says, I'd rather die. But if I have to live, okay. Okay. That's where he was at that point in his life. What's the application here if you're talking about, you know, nation, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Nations who aim for a society that it's approximates in somehow God's kingdom of justice and righteousness actually have huge benefits for it. Things like greater justice, greater compassion, works of mercy. And this is kind of the model for, you know, we talk about the, um, the compassionate state. Do you know who originated that? Christians. Here in Canada, the social justice system that we talk about, which gives so many benefits to the poor, if you want to talk about health care, you want to talk about unemployment insurance, you want to talk about old age pensions, all of that stuff. The originators of that whole notion were Christians in politics. You can't talk about that anymore. Tommy Douglas, okay, Jess Woodsworth, people like this, they were ordained ministers in politics. Hmm? Our whole education system in Canada, which has so little regard for God now, was founded by Christians, including most of the top universities in this country, McGill, Queens, U of T, some of those leading, and, and Ottawa U here in Ottawa was originally a Catholic university, okay? Go and look around in Quebec, Laval, and all of these things. Right? The oldest and most prestigious schools in Canada were all founded by Christians. But when nations turn away from that heritage, what do you expect? You expect what we're seeing. Legalized murder. What am I talking about? Abortion. Okay, and I, I, don't, I don't know where your personal position is on that. Okay. And I'm just going to say at this point, I mean, that's between you and God. Okay. But, and I know this is a bit of a taboo subject. Scientifically, and even atheists will tell you this, there's no way to say that you're doing anything but ending a human life. Okay? I'll just leave it at that. We can talk about all kinds of other behaviors, too, that are self-destructive and all of that, but they're okay. They're legalized. Hmm? 13, 14, 15. From heaven, God looks down and sees all mankind from his dwelling place. He watches... All who live on the earth, he who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. This whole thing about God sitting up in heaven is metaphorical. It's not, never was intended to be taken literally as if, you know, God is the old man with the great white beard sitting up in the sky. That's a picture of the Greek god Zeus, okay, which has been imported by 
semi-pagan Renaissance artists into the Christian tradition, okay? Anyway, all right. Pet peeve there. God isn't sitting up in the heavens literally looking down. The first Soviet cosmonaut, a guy named Yuri Gagarin, quipped when he got up there in 1961, well, I looked around, but I didn't see God anywhere. Now, he was probably being, you know, trying to crack a joke or something. But, of course, it's because God is not going to be found anywhere like that, right? But the truth is that God is still searching our hearts. He's still looking to see. He he understands all those things, our motivations, all our secret thoughts, all of that. There's one psalm that's repeated twice. Well, it's actually, I mean, they give it different numbers, but it's the same. Psalm 14 and 53, if you read them both, you say, what? They're identical. There's no difference at all. The wording is, except for a very minor thing, completely identical, both in Hebrew and depending on your translation, right? In Hebrew, we're talking about here. You can translate it different ways. But in in those two Psalms, Psalms 14, Psalm 53, it's both of them, it's verse two, it says, God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there's any who understand, any who seek God. He's still doing that. Sadly, what David said, because David wrote them both, okay, God observed, and these are David's, this is David's take on what God saw when he does that. All have turned aside, they have become altogether corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Wow. That's because in and of ourselves, we're not capable of doing, I mean, we can do good things, we can be compassionate up to a point, but we fail. We always fail. Interesting, this is the only, th- the only time that a complete passage of Scripture is repeated, word for word. Another part of the law says that anything that has two or three witnesses is true in Scripture, or taken as truth. Okay, it's a valid testimony. I should say in legal terms, it's a valid testimony. So God must be saying something important about us, Right? Finishing. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes his great, by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. But the eye, I'm skipping a bit. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. The first bit here is the idea that we can somehow by political manipulation or by gathering wealth, accumulating power, prestige, fame, fortune, success, you know, climb the ladder, whatever, whatever way you want to express that, you're not going to be saved by it. Guess what? The old expression, right? You can't take it with you. That may impress the people around you for a time. You may even die with a great reputation. 
But when you're dead and buried, in fact, within, you know, whatever instant is that you're going to be faced with God, you're going to be standing there totally naked. Hmm? Like, really? There's another old expression, right? Naked I was born, and naked I will die. Yeah. None of that impressed, impresses God. Whether it's your prowess on the battlefield, your prowess in the athletic department, the amount of wealth you've accumulated, Bill Gates is not going to do anything for you, right? You're impressing some people now, but when you meet your maker, it means nothing, right? And we're all like that. I mean, we like to sort of imagine that we're going to have some way of, you know, becoming somebody. And it's not a bad thing to be ambitious up to a point. And it's not a bad thing to have some good things. But what, what is it your priority is here, right? What are you using that for, just to get more and to impress people? Or are you using it the way that God, if God's giving it to you, the way he'd want you to use it is to actually do some good with it, like some real good, right? You know, in the Old West, they say, if you were a fast gun, there's always one faster somewhere, right? So no amount of all that stuff is going to impress God or going to need anything. Tell me what, how much uh, a missile is going to do against a hurricane or a tornado, right? Is it going to stop it from happening? So, Psalm 33 has a very hopeful end. Some of that stuff we've been talking about is Wow, that's heavy. But it has a very hopeful end. A very hopeful end. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is his unfailing love. If you're undergoing something really difficult right now, it's a real trial. But it's not the end. And even when you die, as we were saying earlier, you're not dead. God's intention for you is to deliver you from death, as it says here. It's to deliver you from death, in verse 19, and keep you alive. Whether it's famine or sickness or whatever it is you're talking about here. Okay? God's intention for you is eternal life, not death. The idea of famine here, well, the, the real famine that kills much more than your body is a famine of knowing the word of the Lord. And we're in that position. You will not starve if you have the living bread. I'm not saying you'll never, you know, there are not people who starve to death physically, even if they know God but you will not starve and die ultimately if you have the living bread. You will not perish if you have everlasting, the water of everlasting life. That's his promise. That's our hope. It's the good news. That's the good news we have, that in the middle of it all, people, brothers and sisters, family of God, 
God is sure to show his faithfulness to us. It won't be easy, but he will. And all around us, God's faithfulness is being shouted to us by the whole creation that's everywhere, outside the window, in your garden, at home, in the sky above you, and inside every cell of your body. It's all screaming at us. There is a beautiful, wonderful creator who loves you and has a purpose for you. And finally and ultimately, there is Jesus. Jesus is the one who opened the way for us to the everlasting life that God has promised us. It's his sacrifice that opened that door. And we now have the privilege to live in God's family. It's being held all, out all the time, every moment, every day. That's why it also says, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not turn away. Today, not tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. You can't do anything about it except for repent if you need to. Right? Try to make some new decisions. But today is the day of salvation. It's the start of the rest of your life. So we'll finish by praying these, and I'm going to tweak it just a little bit, these last few verses here of this psalm, looking at verses 20, 21, and 22, and I'm just going to pray them as a prayer here. Oh Lord, let us wait in hope for you. For you are our help and our shield. Let our hearts rejoice in you, for we trust in your holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen. Go in the shalom of God. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.